0: Taking it to a
1: do it yourself level. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, remotely, of course, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network, and podcast on the internet at 3cr.org.au. Both the BZE Community Show and this Science and Solutions Show are now available on iTunes and Stitcher. So please subscribe and rate us to help others find the shows. There is so much talk about Australia becoming a renewable energy superpower, going to about 700% renewables, having onshore processing of metals and creating other industries, creating a large hydrogen export economy, and renewable energy electricity links overseas. We've also had listener feedback on our Andrew Blaker interview two weeks ago, when he said that every country had the opportunity to generate their own renewable power, so renewable exports for Australia would be limited. Today, we will talk about this and more with Oliver Yates, who is the former CEO of the CFC, the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, and has spent the last 15 years, both as a board director and executive, advancing renewable energy projects and developing low emission solutions. Hi Oliver, thanks for joining us. Okay. Firstly, Oliver, as mentioned in the leading, we recently spoke with Andrew Blakers, who said that most countries have either wind or solar or both, and therefore would be able to provide their own renewable power rather than want to buy hydrogen from Australia, let alone be interested in undersea power cable connections, for instance. Do you agree with that?
0: Uh, I actually don't. I mean, Andrew is normally uh, very accurate on a variety of things, but I, I certainly don't see countries being able to, particularly many of our um, Pacific neighbours being able to generate the amount of clean energy that they need, and it isn't just power is what they need it for; as they need it for processing as well. Power is one use for renewables, uh, but anything that uh, that uses uh, fossil fuels or gas has to be replaced. And I don't think there, that many countries will not have that level of renewable resource available to them.
1: I think he used as an example Japan, which has a lot of offshore wind, and he said Japan is going to create a hydrogen economy, or already is, and as far as I understand it, has been talking to Australia about getting a supply of hydrogen from Australia. His comment was that it's far cheaper for them to use their offshore wind to produce that hydrogen.
0: Well, that's interesting because we know that offshore wind is currently still more expensive than onshore wind. Uh, Australia has much cheaper wind resources than it is likely to be the case for Japanese offshore wind. Um, so even if Japan was able to generate significant levels of offshore wind, it is unclear whether it in any way matched the, the type and the, and, and the co- competitively or in any form of competitive way, the uh, the cost of uh, very cheap Australian renewables. So what you'll be comparing, Kay, is from a Japanese side, is if they if they can make the power in Japan and from offshore wind and use it there. What's the cost difference of that power vis-à-vis having it in Australia and then having to export it over there in a different form and then use it again? Again, he will point out as an engineering point of view, it's obviously best not to reprocess renewables and actually change their format. It would be better to use them directly if you could use them uh, if you had the resource co-located in Japan. Um, But you've got to look at it from an economics point of view at the overall cost. It isn't just engineering economics that matter here. It's actually price economics that matters.
1: And I think his point was that actually having to uh, convert the hydrogen and transport it, um, and given that it's got an efficiency of about 40%, 35 to 40%, I think he said, that would make it unfeasible.
0: Well, it's not unfeasible. It all depends upon cost. So in in, in a world where there's many things that people do which are are not as efficient as as what they should, it all comes down to price. Um, I think Australia is going to be extremely competitive in this market, and the idea that Japan is suddenly going to be able to build deep oceans at any form of speed necessary for the carbon transition, maybe, Andrea, would might like to lay out exactly how many uh, floating offshore wind turbines Japan would have to have a- and what it will be doing in relation to being able to store all of that power. And we you know if you're in Japan... Along every railway line they're uh, they're putting in solar, but solar is brutally expensive in Japan in comparison to Australia. I mean, the feed-in tariff in Japan would be, you know, it's about $220 a megawatt hour, I think, is what the feed-in tariff was for for new solar in Japan. So, you know that's more than four times what it would be in Australia. So look at the end of the day, it'll all come down to uh, it'll all come down to economics. And remember, a lot of the times you, you will want a different chemical anyway, and hydrogen or ammonia will be required. Once it's in that format, they still. I mean, Japan's a massive user of ammonia anyway. So does does he currently think that they're going to take renewables that are really expensive in Japan? make them into hydrogen on very expensive land in Japan and a very expensive economy, then convert that into ammonia and then find that cheaper. I don't believe it will be. It'll be much cheaper to make it in Australia and stick it on a boat if you need ammonia in Japan, which is what they use all the time like us. They use lots of ammonia for their own their own chemicals businesses and their, and their own agriculture. It'll be much cheaper to get it from Australia.
1: I had a look at the distribution of solar around the world and also wind and it seems that most countries do very well with solar or a lot of countries and very many countries have wind all along their coastlines the thing that i noticed though was in southeast asia there was very little wind or solar available to them compared to australia for instance so i'd imagine the market's around that area, that would be very beneficial for them to receive uh, renewable power from Australia.
0: Yeah, yeah, Kay, just start off with the scenario of the cost of building your deep oceans. Building a deep ocean wind farm, um, which is probably going to have to be tethered, is technically complex, versus sticking another standard uh, wind turbine in the Air Peninsula. The cost differential will be massive. It will be vastly cheaper to do a lot of this in Australia. The solar resources are going to be better. The land's cheaper. You know, there may be reasons why actually for the normal use of electricity it might be cheaper, but it certainly won't be cheaper for the production of uh, of ammonia or a whole variety of different chemicals that they'll need in, in Japan. This is the reason why it's the 700% scenario and people keep mixing this scenario up and they think, oh, 100% renewables is 100% renewables. Well, why are we talking about 700% renewables? We're talking about 700% renewables because you need to replace everything else which is used in a different format other than electricity. And ammonia is probably the easiest one for people to understand, but there are bucket loads of chemicals that can be replaced with renewables. So it's renewables to chemicals that we're talking about. And once you're in a chemical form, then the cost of shipping that chemical from Australia is not very expensive.
1: I would have thought it would be reasonably expensive, but I suppose that we're already doing that with gas, aren't we?
0: Well, you're doing it with everything. I mean, you know, if I look at the cost of, so we're looking at a biofuels plant in Queensland and it's cheaper for us to send biofuels from Townsville to California than it is to send biofuels from Brazil to California. And it's much cheaper than getting getting biofuels from the corn states to California because there's no pipeline across to move biofuels from the corn states across to California. So, I mean, shipping is not an expensive exercise for for bulk chemical commodities. It's done all the time. Australia is a major importer of ammonia. We import ammonia into this country, believe it or not. We don't even make it. It's
1: crazy. It's worth highlighting with 700% generation, if you have this huge redundancy, you dramatically reduce or even eliminate the need for storage, don't you?
0: If you're, if you're wondering about what are the advantages of having a very large export facility here, it, it is that it will create an enormous amount of grid stability, because if you're doing that through electrolysers, uh, electrolysers can turn on and off. They become like negative batteries. So you overbuild the level of renewables in Australia, significantly over the capacity of traditional electricity use. And then what you do is obviously you won't be using electricity when... Uh, the electricity price is high, which will be when the renewables are actually at a lower point of view f- for export, you'll actually be using that in the domestic economy. And the advantage of electrolysers is they turn off and off, on and off rapidly. Um, so effectively, you've got um, a demand management tool here, which is very effective to, to create a lot of resilience in our own electricity market.
1: That's interesting that you say that, because one of the other questions that I have is just... Recently, six major projects have been approved. One is fast-tracking the 2nd fast straight link. The the current link has a 500-megawatt capacity between Tasmania and the mainland, whereas ARENA is predicting that Tasmania could supply the mainland up to 1,400 megawatts with their upgrade works for what Tasmania calls the battery of the nation. And this comes on top of the New South Wales government approving Snowy Hydro 2, which is calculated to provide 2,000 megawatts. Is that a, a different way of doing it or do you need that storage as well?
0: Look, I think there's there's a real question here is you definitely do need, Victoria, in my view, is exposed to an early shutdown in relation to some significant coal assets. Snowy hydro is so large that you're again exposed to that project, either failing or otherwise taking longer and therefore you don't know, you can't plan around it. The advantage of BassLink 2 and BassLink 3 is actually they're relatively low-risk projects. They only cost about $800 million bucks each to drop the cable in, and you can put multiple cables in. So rather than having all your eggs in one basket, hoping that Snowy Hydro manages to drill through the, I don't know, the 15 different types of rocks and comes out the other side at the price you anticipated, by allowing and hooking up Tasmania, you get a much more effective and low-risk solution for, uh, for Victoria and also the Nim. The advantage of Tasmania is, of course, that Tasmania has incredible wind resources. And those wind resources, if they can be exported, they actually operate as pumped hydro. So pumped hydro, people think you have to pump water up the hill. Tassie's already got lots of water up the hill. If you build additional wind in Tasmania and you overbuild wind in Tasmania, is what you do is when the wind is howling, you actually don't let the water come down the hill you store the water, you leave the water in the dam, and only when the system needs it, in other words, wind is in load supply, do you actually re- release the water. So Tasmania is a, a fantastic solution for, uh, for the NEM in my view. Uh, it's a very cheap kind of synthetic pumped hydro in the sense that you overbuild wind and you hold the water back rather than having to pump it up the hill, you just hold it back and then you release it when the system needs additional supply.
1: So as part of that building the battery of a nation, you're saying that they'll develop their, their wind power more than hydro?
0: Yeah. I mean, they've got bucket loads of hydro. All they need to do is hold them some of the water back. They're running baseload hydro. Tasmania runs baseload hydro. Why would you mm-hmm. run hydro baseload when hydro is worth so much? I mean, just get, get real here. Again, all about economics. The value of dispatchable power, as we all know, is worth more than intermittent power. So, the moment in Tasmania basically is using dispatchable power as baseload power because hydro power is dispatchable power. Now, what you do is you hold that very valuable resource, being the dispatchable power of hydro, and you build the intermittent power, being wind or solar in Tasmania, and you use that most of the time because it's much cheaper and you get a much better value for the dispatchable power, which is what you have in, in Tasmania. Tasmania has you know, limitless amounts of dispatchable power. They hold back the water when the wind is howling, and then they release it when it's needed. And with Basslink too, as well. If if that comes into the Geelong side, which I think it is planned to come into the Geelong side, Victoria is going to continue to build wind farms on the western flank of Victoria. Unfortunately, they are weather-dependent wind farms. They're not like the ones in Tasmania. These things actually tend to operate at the same time. They're they have a high correlation, and they run when a weather pattern comes through. Well, the advantage of having that cable, if it is howling, eventually, when you do have pumped hydro in Tasmania, if it is howling, then you can take that power over to Tassie and you could pump water back up the hills in Tasmania if you need to. The thing about wind in in Tassie is that some of the large projects that they're proposing to build the capacity factor is massive, and they're almost offshore wind farms onshore. Because of the roaring 40s down there, they operate for about 90% of the time anyway. They're operating nearly all the time. So Tasmania has a very special, a nationally significant wind resource, which is actually uncorrelated with Victoria and um, South Australia. So it in itself is, is good in its own right.
1: Yeah, so it seems imperative to have the bass link, otherwise it's really nearly a waste of power, having all that hydro power just contained in that small place.
0: Well, no, okay, the biggest thing is the exposure that you've got to snowy hydro. To have the nation exposed to such a significant project is a real risk. So diversifying and having multiple projects is a much more sensible way to manage the issue of renewable intermittency coming across the NIMP.
1: So essentially we need something as large as Snowy 2 or many projects as large as Snowy 2 to, to to give that backup power and BassLink as well as some form of electrolyzer storage.
0: Well, so electrolyser, so if you overbuild uh, with electrolyzers, I mean, if you overbuild renewables, then one basic diversity numbers uh, of, of renewables, if you have 700% of capacity, then... OK, what you only need is, is one-seventh of it to be running and, and, and you've, got, uh, you've got enough to, to run the nation. So as long as you've got a strong transmission backbone, you know, if Queensland, Queensland runs at a very different time to South Australia, Queensland runs at a very different time to Tasmania, you will, get, you will get that right type of result across the network in itself if you significantly overbuild renewables in diverse locations.
1: And, of course transmission lines or the existing transmission lines is a bit of an issue at the moment isn't it because there are many renewable projects being held up due to grid congestion
0: Yes, that's the biggest exposure I think we have in the system is a lack of uh, transmission investment. That is delaying uh, renewable energy projects and you will never be able to get to 700% renewables or you'll never build an export capacity unless you can bring renewable power to the market. The market basically being the industrial zones where the power can then be converted into hydrogen or ammonia for export so they need to get on with rapidly get on with uh, transmission and they need to update the national planning to recognize that we're not talking about just you know 100% renewables or 50% renewables we are talking about multiples of that and factor that into the forecast need for transmission
1: yes and given that there are these these projects are being commenced because of the economic situation that we're in, this would be a a prime candidate for a project that needs to be done right now.
0: Well, which one? one? There's there's kind of numerous transmission projects which which should be accelerated, but clearly, you know, my own view has been for a long time that from Victoria's perspective and from maximising the value of the special Tasmanian asset which you have, which is this dispatchable power, their hydro, certainly Baslink is a project that should have been underway you know, uh, years ago.
1: Oliver, during your time at the CEFC, you were liaising with government regarding renewable energy opportunities. We currently have the NCCC, the National COVID-19 Coordination Committee, which is making decisions on these future job opportunities and project opportunities around Australia. As someone with experience in this area, how do you think the NCCC is doing? How do you think it's performing? Look, I've
0: listened to quite a few of them speak, and there was a kind of a nervousness that everything was all about gas, gas, gas. But certainly listening to Andrew Liveris and a few others, that, I mean, it's a sensible proposal to have. Having a group of experienced executives trying to create opportunities and ensure that opportunities can be brought to market is a sensible thing to do. Now, whether they have other agendas, I can't I can't say or can't forecast whether they have other agendas. I'm assuming that they don't. Now, obviously, people lean to what their, their background is and what their experience is. I mean, I've had experience in Tasmania, and therefore people would say, oh, well, I'm pushing BassLink because, you know, I've got relationships in relation to Tasmanian projects, which are, which are true, Kay. But, you know, the question is, is people lean towards the experience. But I don't necessarily think that it's a bad idea. I, I think that, you know... That, I'm expecting them to actually come up with quite a a few really good projects.
1: One of the potential problems that's arising is the concern over environmental approvals for these projects. The government is now undertaking a statutory review of the 1999 Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act. Do you think that's a concern?
0: Look, I think there's been a, um, there was an audit commission or there was a a recent um, review done of the failings of the environment department in relation to environmental approvals. And it's pretty apparent that the system has not been working well, is that it is under resourced and therefore was not actually undertaking the work that was necessary to determine whether a project was environmentally sound and what's more, the project proponent then was suffering horrific delays because, again, the department was, um, was un- understaffed. So there, are, there is a lot of duplication in relation to this. I mean, again, everyone thinks there's people who might be a Trojan horse. I, I, I certainly do worry that... More, I'm, I'm more worry about there being some form of hidden agenda or some form of a relationship um, which is which is overriding good policy uh, and good implementation of policy, more than more than I believe th- that uh, there aren't improvements that could be made in the, in the system to enable us to achieve better environmental outcomes as well as more timely uh, approvals from a no or, or go perspective. I think we have to look at it from the point of view of. There really are some horrifically complicated arrangements which do delay projects, in my view, unnecessarily. But equally, there do appear to be some projects that seem to be able to get an amazing tick uh, as a result of, you know, relationships with relevant ministers or, you know, relevant donors to um, to political parties. That's what, that's what I'm more nervous of than anything else.
1: BCD launched its 1 million jobs plan on June the 29th. And it had a pretty amazing lineup with Michael Cannon Brooks and Christiana Figueres. And part of the BCD vision for this one million jobs is a thousand kilometer transmission line connecting Mount Isa and its copper and zinc lead and silver mines and smelters to Townsville yeah. and connecting it to the Eastern grid. What do you think of that idea?
0: Uh, It's been around for a long time. So this is Copper String 2. Copper String 1 was a project that came up before. I think it's a, I've always thought that it's a sensible project. You've got an issue up in Townsville in the sense that um, as more and more renewables are put in Townsville, you have an issue of stabilising the grid. In Mount Isa, you've got gas peakers sitting there that are unconnected to the NEM. Uh, And in between Mount Isa and Townsville, you have enormous renewable energy resources which could be picked up on the way. What you will do with a project like that is you'll bring the gas peakers into the NEM to help stabilise renewables in Townsville, which will actually create greater resilience in Townsville. And more importantly, you'll drive down power prices out at Mount Isa. Because Mount Isa won't be then captive to the two gas peakers that are out there, or the gas market out in Townsville, it will be able to be reach all the renewables that are in Townsville and along the corridor to, to reduce its electricity price. When you reduce the electricity price out in Townsville, out in Mount Isa, it'll allow you to actually then mine lower grade ore. Now that means because basically your cost of again production or your ability to make a profit is the quality of my ore versus the energy and and the effort involved in in, in getting that mineral out of the ground. If you can have lower energy prices, it will enable you to use lower quality ore, which will enable you to extend the mine life, which will create another life and a longer longevity for the community out at, uh, at Mount Isa. And there are many mines out at Mount Isa that could go ahead because again, their economics would change because they won't need to build independent power infrastructure. So the ability for them to actually come on board and start producing uh, resources will actually grow quite, quite rapidly and quite quickly. They won't need to put in massive generators because they'll be able to be attached to the, to the grid. So I think it's a, it's a good project. I know it's a, a long transmission line, but we've seen long transmission lines put in place before.
1: Yeah, and also the Sun Cable project, where they're proposing to put an underwater cable from Darwin to Singapore, is going to get its energy from Tennant Creek. So that's that's a long way between Tennant Creek and Darwin. That that'll be just as long, I'd imagine.
0: Yeah, it will. I, I, I'm I'm less convinced that um, that there will be a, a transmission line that goes from Darwin to um to Singapore, but I'm... Um I'm more convinced that Darwin could become uh, a chemical uh, a manufacturing hub once it can access cheap power. I mean, that's, and that's what this is all about. Okay, this is about understanding that just like we had cheap coal in the old days, we have cheap electricity power now. And... We all know that cheap power is very valuable because people will move industry to places where the power is cheap and particularly where the power is green. Because why would you build a brand new minerals processing or in heavy industrial complex in a place where you had dirty power even if it was cheap? Because there's a risk it could suddenly get very expensive. You would ideally choose a place which has green power, which is cheap, if you were going to invest in new manufacturing or new chemical plants, and Australia should be willing to host those.
1: Talking of that undersea transmission line that you're not sure of, Michael Cannon-Brooks, as part of his presentation, said that there may be many cables between here and Indonesia or Southeast Asia in the future.
0: Yeah, that is right. I mean, so, for example, there's enormous hydro resources in Sarawak and there's enormous hydro resources in, in Papua as well, which are a lot closer. So, so again, it'll be a question of, of economics, Kay, as to where is the sensible place to deliver the power. And it won't just be pure economics, it's also credit. I mean, you have to have, to build a project like that, you have to have a strong credit at the other end of of the line. And also you need to recognise that just like any transmission line, a country probably won't want to expose itself to one large outage because you could black the country out. So there's limits to how big lines can be. When I did the Air Peninsula project, you can only do 500 kV lines because you couldn't do anything bigger than that. Because if you had someone slam into a power pole and rip the line down, then you'd black South Australia out. It'll be the same with transmission. There'll be a limit to how much you can run in one cable because the event that there is an outage of that cable, it will create um, a, an uncorrectable re- reduction in voltage in the, the, the country which is receiving the power and could cause a blackout.
1: Thanks so much for your time today, Oliver.
0: No worries, Kay. See ya. See ya, everyone.
1: We've been speaking to Oliver Yates, specialist in renewable energy projects. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the climate change solutions think tank, Beyond Zero Emissions, and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the community radio network. Previous episodes of the show are available on iTunes and Stitcher, so please subscribe and help others find the show. If you enjoy the program and can donate to help cover airtime costs and keep us on the air, please go to the BZE website and click on the Donate button. Thanks for listening and we look forward to you joining us again next week. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally
0: recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. Bze.org.au